1 Peter 3, 8-17. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Do this, because to do because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. We all went on holiday together. Slightly risky, you might think. The week before last, in Balfi Guest, the seaside town adjoining Port Maddock in North Wales. The weather wasn't very good, so we rejoiced when the weather forecast suggested that the Wednesday was to be wall-to-wall sunshine, and plans were laid for a day on the beach. We arranged for the family to go to a very wide beach at Borth, just a short walk from the house that we were staying at. And whilst there, the two younger children, Matthew and Phoebe, wanted to go paddling in the sea. Unfortunately, the tide was out on an already very wide beach, and the adults persuaded them to wait until later. However, there was a mountain stream emptying out onto the beach nearby on its way to the sea. And it dropped onto the beach in a small waterfall that created a pool in the sand. And Matthew saw this and without a word to anyone, went to paddle in it. And he rushed in, but discovered that the pool was deeper than he thought. And what's more, he discovered that the water coming down mountains is very cold. Even in August. And he was quickly in trouble. And I mean trouble. My wife, Sheila, was the only one of the adults who was close enough to see him. And she went in after him and was able to reach him and hold him above the water. But the cold got to her too. And she didn't have the strength to pull him out. 
Well, it's getting very tense, this story now, isn't it? <laughs> she cried out for help, and a guardian angel appeared in the form of a couple who were sat nearby on the beach. And the gentleman, a total stranger, then leapt in and was able to pull both of them out of the pool. They were both shaken, but unhurt. And the only casualty was my wife's mobile phone that went in for a drenching with her. Why she didn't have the presence of mind to throw it away beforehand, I will never understand. After being thanked, the man and his wife disappeared. It's the nature of guardian angels that they appear at the vital moment when we need them and promptly disappear again afterward. Our God is always ready to save us, even when we don't think we need saving. And already I need to drink. Right. Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to read together now. Verses 10 to 24. Finally, you can always tell the halfway point in any of Paul's letters because he puts in the word finally. (laughs) Finally, build up your strength in union with the Lord and by means of his mighty power, put on all the armour that God gives you so that you will be able to stand up against the devil's evil tricks. For we are not fighting against human beings, but against the wicked spiritual forces in the heavenly world, the rulers, the authorities, and the cosmic powers of this dark age. So put on God's armor now, and then when the evil day comes, you will be able to resist the enemy's attacks. And after fighting to the end, you will still hold your ground. So stand ready with truth as a belt tight around your waist, with righteousness as your breastplate, and as your shoes, the readiness to announce the good news of peace. And at all times carry faith as a shield. For with it you will be able to put out all the burning arrows shot by the evil one. And accept salvation as a helmet. And the word of God as the sword which the Spirit gives you. Do all this in prayer, asking for God's help. Pray on every occasion as the Spirit leads. And for this reason, keep alert and never give up. Pray always 
to all, for all God's people. And pray also for me that God will give me a message when I am ready to speak so that I may speak boldly and make known the gospel's secret. For the sake of this gospel, I am an ambassador, though now I am in prison. Pray that I may be bold in speaking about the gospel as I should. The origins of the city of Ephesus, it's a bit of a ruin now, (laughs) go back to the 10th century BC, that's about the time of King David, when the colonists from Greece built a settlement there in what had been part of the ancient Hittite kingdom. Ephesus became one of the ancient Greek city-states and it became the home to the Temple of Artemis in 550 BC which became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Now Artemis was the Greek goddess of virginity, childbirth and wild animals. And no... I can't see the connection between them either. The city then came under the control of the Roman Republic in 129 BC and soon became the third largest city in the Roman Empire. And under the Romans, the Roman goddess Diana was seen as the same as Artemis. And the two names were used interchangeably. Paul first arrived at Ephesus in 52 or 53 AD and is traditionally accepted as the founder of the church there. He spent a short period in prison at Ephesus and whilst there, tradition affirms that he wrote no less than four letters to the church at Corinth, two of which form 1st and 2nd Corinthians in your Bibles. The book of Revelation is believed to have been written to the church at Ephesus and six other towns which had been set up by missionary endeavours from Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. And just beyond Laodicea, you can see it on the map, was a seventh town, Colossae. Now Colossae was excluded from the list in Revelation But it did get its own letter from Paul. A letter which bears a lot of similarities with the letter to Ephesus. It's widely believed that this letter to the Ephesians 
was actually written to all of the seven churches. As far as the New Testament letters go, the letter to the Ephesians is a bit of an oddity. As a letter of Paul, it lacks any mention of the many people who Paul clearly had a warm relationship with. And yet the scholars seem convinced that it was written by Paul. If it was written by Paul, it must have been written from Rome shortly before his martyrdom. And the second oddity is this. Many of the earliest manuscripts don't include the title at Ephesus in the first verse. And one of them put in the phrase at Laodicea instead. And so it seems that we're looking at a letter that is written as a kind of circular and this would perhaps explain the lack of personal greetings that are universal in all of Paul's other letters. And possibly they were omitted when the copies were made. The letter divides neatly into a theory section, that is chapters 1 to 3, and a practice session, that is chapters 4 to 6. It's interesting that all the contentious bits are in the second section. The first section gives us a summary of the effects of the gospel on the people of God. And it tells of the part that Paul had played in that and then ends in a prayer for them to go forward in the power of the Spirit. The second section begins with an affirming of the need for unity in Christ and living in the Spirit and gives examples of what that might mean in practice. And finally, Paul talks about spiritual warfare, which we're all involved in, whether we like it or not, and that's what we're going to look at next. Paul, first of all, reminds us of the battle that the church was and still is involved in. And calling upon them to put on their armour, which is a metaphor that he develops later on. And he says, we are not fighting against human beings but against the wicked spiritual forces in the heavenly world, the rulers, the authorities, and the cosmic powers of this dark age. So what are these rulers and authorities? In Paul's day, there was an emperor. And at this point in history, it was Nero. 
Beneath him were a whole series of regional governors. Some were military men, like Pilate. Some were local leaders. And some, well, there's one or two who were just an odd king. They were expected to keep order and were usually extremely brutal in their administering of that. And beneath them, there was a local civil service and the priesthoods of the various religious bodies. Beneath them were the local guilds of workers. Think trade union. And the community leaders, usually referred to as a a local senate in Roman times. They were the village elders. Think local authority. These were, and still are, the rulers and authorities. We might today call them corporate bodies. Today, such corporate bodies are much more abundant. That's largely to do with the fact that there's a lot more people. But they are there and we do tend to take them rather for granted. From the top, they include government, national, regional and local, including its quasi-autonomous national government organisations, or to you and me, quangos. (laughs) They include all commercial businesses, from BP and Coca-Cola, all the way down to your local corner shop. And the poss- with the possible exception of sole traders. They include the trade unions, as well as trade guilds and business associations, such as the CBI. And they will include all charitable bodies, from Oxfam and the Red Cross down to your local school's PTA. It will include all the political parties and their associated pressure groups, such as the Adam Smith Institute, or just to keep the political balance, the Joseph Roundtree Foundation. They include your local churches, including this one. Now it's getting close to home, isn't it? (laughs) And all of its associated organisations, from the worship group to the youth club and the Sunday school. They include all the denominational structures, quite irrespective of their theology, their leadership structure, or their size. The characteristics that distinguish them is that they are formed by human beings who associate together to achieve a distinctive end. And the key 
is that such bodies are unable to act morally. When the various banks were challenged over the morality of their mis-selling of their banking products, almost to a man, they responded that it was legal. These powers are incapable of behaving morally. They cannot feel love or hate, compassion, anger, guilt, or any other emotion although the individuals involved can do so. This is why a Baptist church business meeting will frequently show the often quite devilish side of a church that can remain hidden at most other times. I bet you always wanted to know that. These bodies seem to be bigger than the sum of their parts. There are moods in these bodies that are identifiable but difficult to explain. Other than as a spirit that seems to drive the body, mostly in the direction of evil. It is this mood that Paul identifies as the cosmic powers of this dark age. And it is these spirits against which we are fighting. Not, and I emphasize not, the human beings involved. So Paul embarks on a picture that is familiar to almost anybody who has been through Sunday school. So let's look at a typical Roman soldier. Here he comes. He's a statue and he's in a museum in Britain, but that's a by the way. Paul goes through the list of military uniform in roughly the order in which a Roman soldier would dress himself or perhaps be dressed by his attendant slaves if he was rich enough. He starts with a belt. Now the belt wasn't there to hold his trousers up as he wasn't wearing any trousers. It was an anchor point for the various bits of armour that he was required to carry and wear. And Paul identifies it with truth. Real and dependable honesty is the foundation of our ability to take on the powers. The reason that people are so disillusioned with politics at the moment has a lot to do with the lack of integrity amongst our politicians. Whether it's a regular succession of politicians being caught with their hands in the till, claiming expenses that they are not entitled to, or receiving large payoffs for political favours 
Over time, it becomes easy to imagine that they're all doing it. And for many people, an honest politician is a contradiction in terms. But if we're going to stand up for righteousness and defend the defenceless, we need to be squeaky clean as to our dealings with others. And our truthfulness has to be impeccable. And perhaps more significantly, we need to be quick to put our hands up to our own shortcomings rather than wait for someone else to accuse us. Next is the breastplate. Roman breastplate, sorry, start again. Roman breastplates were not single sheets of metal, but a number of overlapping pieces that together gave plenty of protection and allowed the body plenty of movement. Paul identifies this with righteousness. Righteousness is often seen as avoiding sin. But it's more than that. Righteousness is more like, what would Jesus do? We learn from his compassion. Do you remember the flexible breastplate? The call to righteousness is not the call to wear a straitjacket. It's a call to obey the Spirit of God, our Commander-in-Chief. The Roman army boots are next. There they go. It's a lot easier, this, than the days when we used to have to physically get somebody to dress up, is it? You know. The army boots were made of leather, like modern army boots, but with these rather fetching holes for ventilation and to keep the feet cool. Can't think of what else they could be for, really. <laughs> Paul likens them to readiness. Be always ready, says Peter, in the verse that uh, Jasmine amplified for us so beautifully. To give a reason for your hope. Be ready. Seize the moment for God. In modern warfare, a shield would be completely useless, as the enemy can shoot you dead from the next county. But in a world where warfare was only possible, when you could see the whites of the eyes, the shield was a necessary part of your armour, at least until gunpowder started to make it a bit pointless. There you go. The Romans perfected the shield. They made theirs oblong and curved, in contrast with most of their contemporaries, who usually made circular shields for themselves. And it wasn't quite big enough 
for a soldier to completely hide behind. But its oblong shape meant that if two or more soldiers stood together, their shields became impenetrable. Indeed, the Romans perfected this device, a testudo, or to translate it from the Latin, a turtle. A testudo was to go anywhere device for the Romans in battle. With it, they could advance against all but the heaviest of bombardments. They could break sieges and put down riots. Paul calls his shield faith. And he knew that it is actually quite difficult to hold on to faith on your own. Part of the shield of faith was the need for us to stand and work together in cooperation. Standing alone, we are weak and vulnerable. But together, we can take on the world. Paul then moves on to the helmet. All soldiers to this day wear helmets, as our heads are the most vulnerable parts of our bodies. Paul calls it salvation, because if somebody hits you on the head, you're dead. (laughs) Getting saved, being born again, receiving the Lord are all phrases that we use to identify that critical moment when we surrender to the Lord Jesus, our Commander-in-Chief. It's a critical moment on a lengthy journey. The whole journey, which will have begun long before you were even aware of it, will not end until you stand at the gates of heaven. And it protects who we are. Now, here's a question for you. What is the most dangerous letter in the alphabet? Any ideas? No, it's the letter S, because it changes words into swords. The phrase, the phrase, the word of God, has been used of the Bible since the Reformation, And the aim was to replace the authority of the Pope with the authority of the Bible. And it was perfectly understandable in its context. However, the snag arises when we start reading the Bible and we meet this same phrase in a range of passages like this one. We are apt then to interpret the phrase as referring to the Bible. And many of us can recall putting our Bibles under our arms and saying, sheathe your swords, use your sword. Can you remember doing that? I remember doing that. It fits up to a point. But the reality is that the Bible then just didn't exist. Paul was still writing his bits. 
And at this point, he would have been rather surprised if you had told him that we would be poring over his writings and dissecting and analysing every word 2,000 years later. And equally, great chunks of our New Testament were still being written, including at least three of the four Gospels and almost all the letters other than Paul's and the book of Revelation hadn't even yet appeared as a vision. When Paul spoke of Scripture, he was thinking of our Old Testament, which he had studied as a young man in preparation for his degree as a Pharisee. He knew the text well and quoted it liberally in his writings, although he sometimes got the quote wrong. So if he isn't talking about the Bible, what is he talking about? Before the coming of Jesus, there had been an abundance of prophets, from Moses to Malachi, each speaking the word of God. But from the second century BC on, the belief grew up that the age of prophecy was over. And this became a barrier for any who had a prophetic gift at that time. Because they would be rejected, because they would be told, we don't have prophets anymore, we now have the law. And many scholars believe that the writer to the book of Daniel was actually a second century prophet who, in order to be heard, had to pretend he lived in the fifth century. Once the church began in Pentecost, prophecy was suddenly back in vogue. The prophets appeared in abundance throughout the New Testament. It was these prophetic utterances and the associated preaching gifts that were termed the Word of God. So when Paul talks about the sword of the Spirit as being the word of God, he was thinking of something much more dynamic than a written book. He was talking about the way that the Holy Spirit would come upon people and give them the words to speak. So wielding the sword of the Spirit included being able to quote appropriate pieces of Scripture. But it was much bigger than that. It was much more to do with getting in tune with God's spirit. So that you can respond in an appropriate way to others. Whether they're trying to put you down or asking honest questions. So Paul finally calls upon us as soldiers to make a stand. And not a harsh and bitter and angry stand, but determined and defiant. To resist these powers and their tendency to run roughshod over the vulnerable, all in the name of Jesus. 
It's a difficult balance to maintain. We have to be firm with the business, but gentle with the representative who's talking to you on the phone. We need to be firm with the supermarket, but gentle with the person who passes your purchases over the barcode reader. We need to stand firm over injustice and exploitation whilst being gentle with the poor individual who's paid to handle your complaint. And in this way, we can show Christ in our dealings with the world and its institutions whilst showing love to those who represent them. This lady is Baroness Lawrence of Clarendon. As Doreen Lawrence, she was the mother of Stephen Lawrence, a young black man who was brutally murdered in Eltham in South London in 1993. She endured this appalling situation, but realised that the police had failed to investigate the killing properly on account of their racial assumptions about Stephen's lifestyle. In 1999, her campaigning bore fruit when Jack Straw, the Home Secretary at the time, established a judicial inquiry under Sir William Macpherson, who concluded that the Metropolitan Police were institutionally racist. In turn, this led to the prosecution of the murderers and an inquiry within the Metropolitan Police. For her persistence and determination, fueled by her Christian faith, she was rewarded with a peerage and a seat in the House of Lords. And this is an example of how we need to stand up against the powers, although you won't necessarily get that kind of recognition. On the 15th of April, 1989, Liverpool Football Club, and I don't tell many stories about football, were due to play Nottingham Forest in the FA Cup semi-final. And this was due to take place in Sheffield Wednesday's football ground at Hillsborough Stadium. You may be aware of the horrific crush that developed within one of the fenced-off pens that were designed to prevent fans from invading the pitch. Unfortunately, the crowds of Liverpool fans were misdirected by the South Yorkshire police and one of the pens became dangerously overcrowded. This resulted in no less than 96 deaths, which the police blamed on the fans being drunk. This, uh, this situation was made worse by the Sun newspaper, whose subsequent headline enraged almost every football fan on Merseyside. And even today, 
It is difficult to find a newsagent willing to sell you a copy of The Sun anywhere in Liverpool. 26 years on. The families of the victims were outraged by the initial inquiry in 1990 as it bore the hallmarks of a cover-up. And they spent the next 25 years campaigning to have a new inquiry that put the blame on the police rather than the fans themselves. Eventually, the Home Secretary, Alan Johnston, in 2009, set up an inquiry chaired by the Reverend James Jones, who was then Bishop of Liverpool. And that inquiry recommended a new series of inquests on the victims. And these inquests are still proceeding at Warrington. Sadly, some of the campaigners had died before they were able to see the justice that they had yearned for. Must be coming near the end of glasses empty. We have a purpose. A God-given purpose which is to bring compassion and humanity into our dealings with the world. We are called to respect the institutions that are used and sometimes misused to work for the common good of the nation and humanity. Whilst at the same time, we need to be constantly on our guard against the way that these institutions so very easily become a vehicle for oppressing the people. The people that they were always intended to serve. We have a calling, which is to take these institutions with their tendency to do evil and commandeer them for good in Jesus' name. 